You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing this week? Hey, Robert. I'm I'm going to echo how we were last week and say <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing okay. Actually, yeah. I feel like I'm doing as good as I can be right now, just in the midst of this season. So how how are you doing? I am good. I'm uh, better than I was last week. I think last week was the week that I wasn't doing great. So uh, a couple of those things that were kind of hitting all at once. Some of those have gotten a little bit better, which is good. I am, uh, to be perfectly honest, glad that October is over. It was just... Praise Man, Jesus. it was just I know. Uh, quite the month for us. I mean, every single weekend we yep. had something. The last two weekends we had weddings, which were both amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were yeah. both really fun. Got to see a lot of cool people and got to celebrate, obviously. But I think it'll be good, hopefully, this weekend uh, that that this comes out on the Monday on the tail end of the first yeah. weekend in November. Just to uh, – we still have a couple things, obviously, you know. Um, yeah. But we're, right. not, we're not traveling at least, which is good because mm. I think all four of October we were traveling somewhere. So. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah that's – So we made it. Hard. You made it. That's awesome. I'm uh, on that tail end too. I mean, I – I mean, I had even posted the other day, like, yay, October's done. I survived. And I'm, I do see like a light at the end of the tunnel. But I mean, I know we were just talking about a little bit before that this, um, I will say that I am so glad that I practice centering prayer because (laughs) it has been, I mean, it truly like, this is how I'm able to cope with these seasons where it is just like, um, like I just feel like my Outlook calendar is just directing every second of where I go and what I yeah. do and trying to keep up with that with big deadlines and events. And I had this great, awesome opportunity this last week to speak to, you know, my colleagues and my students and the community about um, a, a, um, an ethical call for self-awareness within spiritually sensitive social work practice. And <laughs> a lot of it, I know, um, it was a mouthful, but a lot of it was focused on the research that I've done, looking at LCSWs across the country and the predictors of, you know, whether or not they're considering clients' faith in clinical practice. And, sure. um, you know, so it just, it was a great opportunity to talk about, you know, some research that I love and, um, and just some, what do we do with that? But it definitely was something I wanted to give, you know, every bit of effort to. And so I'm kind of just, you know, catching up from that and as well as other deadlines. And, you know, we've got a conference coming up. So I'm going to be in Orlando. Actually, just a couple of days after this episode comes out, I'm heading to Orlando for the Council on Social Work Education uh, annual program meeting. So yeah, so it's, it's good. There's a lot of good. But again, I just go back to that centering prayer plug, because it's like that, I really do feel like that has been my grounding to just keep me centered and say, you know, it's okay. There's a lot going on, but but I don't need to hustle for love or worthiness in any of these things that I'm doing. Mm. And I could just, you know, just do these things from a place of um, just feeling called to do them. So yeah. if no, that makes so sense. Because it's so easy. I mean, I know lots of people are going through hectic time periods and things like that, yeah. you know, uh, especially in the fall. I don't know if that's 
I don't, I kind of assume that a lot of people feel the fall, you know, but I guess there's a lot of people, most people don't work on, you know, semester flows or anything like that, uh, which technically I don't anymore, but still with Brooke mm-hmm. running a college ministry, we still kind of do. So, um, I guess most people maybe don't think about the year, the years like that, but yeah. uh, I still think of years in like, uh, semester flows from working in campus ministry and teaching and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, which obviously you're a professor, so you think kind of that way too, but yes. Yeah. Well, and even having kids, I'm sure for a lot of folks too, you know, um, those are those with cat with kids that, you know, that we kind of go by, you know, the season, there are these seasons as well. So that's a good point. Yeah. 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 But we do have, I do have one awesome thing. Our Baylor homecoming is this weekend and I am so excited about that. So we have a big parade tomorrow morning that I'm super, super excited about and my kids are pumped about it. And so, yeah, we, we're looking forward to doing that tomorrow. But what about you? Do y'all have any fun plans for this weekend? Uh, this weekend, so the weekend that, right, the, prior yeah, the, we all, I feel like we always yeah, kind of clarify, but, right. uh, yeah, this weekend I'm actually, I'm doing a presentation, uh, on Sunday, like a training for, um, at a church for like their volunteers that work with their college, like ministry, which will be really fun. Yeah. Uh, I've spent some time putting that together this week, which co- I mean, college kids are one of my passion areas. So that's been really fun. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I think on Saturday, we're doing uh, like a kind of a get together with a bunch of people that I graduated with this summer from grad school. So we're oh, all yeah. getting together and we're going to hang out and grab some dinner and stuff and, um, you know, see see how everyone's doing, you know, whatever, six months out or whatever it is and exchange referral Gosh. information or whatever, but kind of see how everyone's doing the first chunk of time being out in, in the counseling field. So that should be yeah. fun. Oh, that'll be awesome. I know when you when you go through your master's program or any any program like that, you just bond so much like so well with people. Hopefully. I mean, I feel right, like right. everyone yeah, hopefully, but but that bond going through, you know, grad school is like it's just so important. So that's great that you get to to see them and hang out this weekend. That's awesome. I think that's about it that we have this weekend. But what's interesting, you just mentioned presenting on some research about are we considering clients' spirituality and things like that, right? Yeah. Uh, which I think is a fantastic segue into this week's episode. Heck yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this week we have um, Dr. Michelle Pierce, who is actually um, at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She, so uh, Michelle and I actually, we're we're actually working on some research right now, kind of looking at what what you had just talked about, uh, particularly looking at mental health care providers, whether or not they're integrating their clients' faith into mental health treatment. Mm -hmm. And and so we, you know, we had invited her onto the show. She's going to be talking. Um, specifically about cognitive behavioral therapy for Christians with depression, and she'll she unpack. She li- literally wrote a book on. Like she right? yeah. literally, I know, right? She literally wrote a book on this. Um, but she does. I mean, I loved this episode. She does such a good job explaining, you know, what cognitive behavioral therapy is, and like how, you know, not only like how you know clients can be using it, but really how it's something that any of us could use in yeah. our day to day lives in terms of, you know, our thinking and our behaviors and our feeling. And yeah, and she does such a good job talking about this with depression. But then also, you know, how do we infuse our, you know, our Christian faith into, um, you know, these coping skills for specifically for, you know, depression? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and that's, I was, that's what I was going to make sure I mentioned is that 
this maybe is one. I know there's sometimes we have episodes where maybe the, the title or the description, maybe if you're not in the mental health field, you look at it and you say, I don't know what this is. You know, maybe I won't listen. This one seems like mm-hmm. it's not geared towards me. But yeah. Michelle does such a great job of talking about how how any of this is useful for you know, essentially anyone for you individually or for, you know, a, a, someone who's a faith leader or anything like that, as well as obviously for mental health professionals. But I think she does a really good job of making it accessible and, and practical, you know, useful for pretty much anyone. And I, I learned a ton from it. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I just love every opportunity that I get to connect with her. So I'm so grateful that our listeners um, have this opportunity to get to learn from her too. And then certainly we'll, you know, we'll have all her information in the show notes so you can check out her book and um, some of her information. But yeah, I'm really excited uh, for our listeners to get to hear this one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, before we transition in, I do want to mention, we like to kind of drop it in there every couple episodes, but there is a huge variety of ways that you can support CXMH mm. if you think the work we're doing is beneficial or helpful to yeah. you in any way. So check out the show notes. There's If you scroll kind of down towards the bottom, there's a ton of different ways that you can help support the show, um, some of which are just things you could do in your daily life that you already do, like shopping on Amazon and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, just yep. wanted to you know drop a little pointer to that every couple episodes to make sure that that folks know about that type of thing. Yeah, no, I, I'm grateful that you, you know, remind us about those those opportunities to support because, you know, we love this work, but um, any any opportunities for folks to support if they feel led to is um, something we're super grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, hey, we can go ahead and transition in to this episode with Dr. Michelle Pierce. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. Today, Robert and I are joined by Dr. Michelle Pierce as our guest. Uh, Dr. Pierce is a clinical psychologist and an assistant professor in the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She researches the relationship between religion and spirituality, coping and health, as well as the integration of spirituality into the practice of psychotherapy. Dr. Pierce received her PhD from Yale University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT at Duke University Medical Center and a second fellowship uh, in spirituality and health at the Duke Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health. She is the author of the book Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Christians with Depression, a practical tool-based primer. And Dr. Pierce and I have a lot of overlapping interests, um, and so I'm really excited to have her here um, and for us to just have the distinct honor of uh, getting to learn from her today. And uh, also, Dr. Pierce and I, we've been working on some pretty exciting research involving mental health clients and providers that we'll talk a little bit more about later, but I really just kind of want to dive in. So Dr. Pierce, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to be here. Good, good. Is there anything that I missed in the bio uh, that you want to add? No, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Well, before we dive into some of our questions um, that are a little bit more focused on cognitive behavioral therapy and your research, um, do you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about your journey into this line of work and research that you're involved in? Sure. So, you know, as far as long as I can remember, I've been really interested by the role that religion plays in people's lives. 
especially when they are struggling in life, you know, going through dark times. But it really wasn't until I got to graduate school that I realized that you could study religion empirically. Um, before that, you know, religion had been a matter of faith for me, especially as a Christian woman, um, but it had never been a matter of science. So that the, the sort of the science journey of this really began in graduate school. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we've, we've mentioned on this show before that a lot of our listeners um, include mental health care providers, religious leaders, um, and many who are affected by mental health, whether it's personally or with the loved one. Um, so for those who may not be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, do you mind unpacking a little bit about what that is? I know it probably sounds like a, like a pretty big phrase, um, but tell us a little bit about what, what this is. Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT for short, is a very popular type of psychotherapy. It's actually one of the most thoroughly researched type of therapy out there today. It evolved from traditional behavioral therapy during the 1960s. And the two major figures for CBT were Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis. And this type of therapy is more time-limited. It's more present-focused. It's very collaborative with the client. And when I'm teaching it to clients what this the CBT model is, I usually draw three circles. So if you can envision, if our listeners can envision three circles kind of in a, a square. So we have a circle that we would say feelings, and then we'd have a circle inside of that, it would say thoughts, and another circle, and inside of that circle it says behavior. The most important part of this model with these three circles is that all the circles are connected to one another with interconnecting arrows. And what that simply means is that our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors are all interconnected. Now, people come to see us and mental health professionals because something is going on in that feeling circle. They're feeling depressed or they're feeling anxious. And if it was as simple as saying, just change your feelings, they would do that and, and we'd be out of a job, which actually would be kind of nice for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. But CBT, these, these theorists and research have discovered with much research over the years that if we can change what we're thinking and or change what we're doing, our behavior, we can change how we're feeling. So this type of therapy really targets those two things. What are you thinking and what are you doing? Or what are you not thinking? What are you not doing that's mm -hmm. contributing to feeling badly? Hmm. So can you uh, give us like a brief example of someone walking in and, and maybe an example of kind of how that flow works if we're picturing kind of that flow chart? Yeah. So let me pick a really mundane example to start with. Let's say so I'm looking at my window right now and it is a rainy day here in Baltimore, Maryland. And so let's say I looked at the window that's uh, the circumstance. Um, we always start with what is the circumstance or the situation. And the situations, I look at my window and it's raining. So for th the thoughts, I might say to myself, oh, I hate the rain. Um, I have curly hair. It makes for a very bad hair day. I can't go for that walk that I wanted to go for with a friend. Um, as a result, I'm feeling disappointed or I mean, I'm feeling frustrated. And the behavior might be, you know, I stay in, I don't see my friend, and I kind of mope around. Um, for another person, maybe it's the same situation. They're here in Baltimore, and they look at the window, it's raining, and think, oh, I love rainy days. This is amazing. I'm so happy it's rainy. It's just like my kind of day. And so that's their thinking, like, this is great. I love the rain. Um, so their feelings are more upbeat, um, happy, maybe just neutral. And their behavior perhaps is unchanged. Maybe that's the day that they like to be outside and take a walk. Or maybe they like it because now, now they don't have to cut the grass. Um, they get another day off. So it's just a simple illustration to show that 
what the circumstance that we're in or the situation that we're in is not what determines how we're feeling. It's really what we're thinking about that situation. It's our interpretation. It's the meaning that we give to it that determines how we're feeling and what kind of actions we engage in. Yeah. So part of this, if you take it at like a really simplistic you know, view upon first glance might sound to someone like, oh, just, you know, think positive or think happy thoughts mm-hmm. and, and you'll feel better, mm-hmm. right? Which to some people is going to sound like, well, that's, you know, not very helpful. If I could just right. instantly do that, I would. So what makes this different? Because as you said, it is pretty heavily researched and, and shown to be effective. But what makes this different than just, well, think that the rain's awesome? Right. So it's, I think it's more than think, it's more believe. And so how do we get to the level of belief? And I usually present it to my clients like this. I say to them, in this type of therapy, I'm going to make you like a scientist, a scientist and a lawyer. Um, so what we're going to do is take those thoughts that come into your head automatically. We all have these go into our head every day. They're automatic. So mostly we don't notice them. What we do notice is how we're feeling. So we're feeling miserable or we're feeling dejected, but we're not noticing the thoughts that's causing that. So I say to them, I want us to slow down to catch those thoughts. What are you thinking And then to ask yourselves, so basically imagine like you're in a laboratory, you're a scientist, and you're putting those thoughts down on the lab bench. And you want to determine, are those thoughts true? Is what I'm thinking actually true? So in this sense, you become like a lawyer, and you are gathering evidence for the things that I am believing. Are they true? And if they're not true, then we need to think a different thought. Now, sometimes the thoughts that we're thinking are true. And so at that point, I offer them a second question. So I had to narrow it just down to two questions or two things they learned to challenge these unhelpful thoughts. I would first start out with, is it true? Yes or no? And then is it helpful? Um, and usually the answer to one of those is no, it's not helpful. So the, the evidence that they're gathering as they're answering those questions, and there's other sorts of disputing questions that they can ask themselves is like a a lawyer gathering evidence in a court case. And this evidence that they're presenting to the judge has to really hold weight. And so in that sense, it's different than just thinking a positive thought. It's really being systematic about gathering evidence to challenge and change these thoughts. Hmm. That's really good. I think even just you um, posing those two questions, is it true and is it helpful? And just really constructively thinking about that in light of our thoughts. Um, that's a really good way of unpacking it. Oh, God. Yeah. So uh, do you mind, let's maybe shifting a little bit of this, talking about how then can CBT um, help those who are struggling with symptoms of depression? You You mentioned that you know, there's a ton of research on cognitive behavioral therapy, and I would imagine, uh, well, we we know that there is some, um, certainly plenty on depression, but I'd love for you to unpack that, like, like how this can specifically help those who are struggling with symptoms of depression. Sure. So we've talked a little bit about the the thinking styles. So for someone who's depressed, their their thinking style is usually quite negative. It's quite global. It feels very permanent. The situation. And so we're helping them to get at the root of what are some of these thoughts that are generating those depressed feelings, whether it's no one likes me or I'm not lovable or things don't work out well for me or whatever it might be. We get to the root of what are those thoughts that they're thinking. And then we take them through. We usually use something called a thought log, which systematically takes them through the different steps to be able to identify those thoughts and then to challenge and change those thoughts. The second thing that we're doing, so that's the the cognitive piece. The behavioral piece, I'm also asking them, 
what sorts of activities are they engaging in or not engaging in that are contributing to the depression. So for mm. instance, if someone is withdrawing, this is a very common symptom of depression, they're withdrawing from their friends. And I often hear them say, well, I don't want to be around anyone because I'm a downer right now. Or, you know, I don't want to bring anyone else down with me. When in fact, the research is so clear, that one of the best things that we can do is to be with other people, that social support. Yeah. So one of the behaviors that we might change for them is helping them to get re-engaged with other people or with other activities. Um, other behaviors that are really helpful in challenging depression are things that give us a sense of purpose or meaning or mastery or achievement. So, mm. you know, it could be a very small thing. Um, I remember I had one client and she had a hard time staying on top of her, uh, her kitty litter box. She wasn't changing the cat litter. And for her, just starting to do that every day or every other day and feeling like she had a sense of achievement that she was doing something um, for her betterment, even that small thing led to an improvement in her mood. So these, these actions that we're talking about don't have to be huge, um, but all these small things can really add up to changing one's emotions. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. I like how it can be even just those those tiny little steps. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which can feel like huge steps, though, for many when they're in the midst of oh, struggling yes. with depression. But yeah, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you something else that I know you have published on tremendously is uh, religious CBT. So <laughs> looking at the way in which religion can be integrated into CBT. Do you mind kind of unpacking that, um, what is it, um, and maybe talking about some of the research that you and others have done at Duke University on this? Sure, I'd be happy to. So if we can go back to that imaginary drawing that we had at the beginning, we talked about CBT with those three circles and those interconnecting arrows. So your thoughts, our feelings, and our behavior. If you could imagine underneath of those circles this um, kind of like a platform or a foundation. And this would be someone's religious beliefs, religious values, resources, and practices. And this becomes the foundation for all the work that we do in that model. So the work that we do in challenging thoughts or the work that we do in challenging behavior comes from or is informed by a person's religious beliefs, practices, values, and resources. And this is very client-centered. So this is not determined by the, the, the therapist, but mm-hmm. by the client. So we're trying to figure out, well, what does the client believe if they're a religious or a spiritual client? What do they believe? What do they practice? What are their values? And then use that to help shift, like I said, those emotions or those behaviors. Mm, that's good. Can you give us some examples yes. of like how you've seen this, how, um, like some examples of how it's been integrated and helped shift and maybe even like some examples of where it's worked well and maybe like an instance where it hasn't worked well. Sure. So I'm thinking about um, so how we can challenge and change some of our thinking patterns. So, for instance, you might have a client who um, is having a really hard time maybe feeling confident or getting things done. And um, I'm thinking of a Christian client helping them to shift that belief. So we're talking about gathering that evidence before. In this sense, what they're doing is they're drawing from their religious teachings or religious worldview to gather evidence. And so one of the things we help them do is to look at, if they're a Christian, uh, look at scriptures or look at uh, Christian teachings that help to support 
a different way of thinking. So, for example, I can think of a client who recently used the verse, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And they might not believe on their own that they could meet the demands of the situation. But when they looked at their religious teachings and what they believed to be true or ultimate truth, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, they use that as evidence to support a different way of thinking. And that different way of thinking made them feel more confident and more hopeful. And those feelings then led to them to engage in different kinds of actions um, to start to take some initiative on, on something that was difficult for them. So that would be one way that they're just they're using scriptures or they're using teachings as evidence, as an ultimate truth. They sometimes call it like a true standard um, that they can use to shift how they're thinking. The mm, other thing is, good. yeah. Oh. Well, and, and I, so, and, but I want to highlight one thing, but this was, you had mentioned that this scripture had come from the client, right? Like this right. wasn't the therapist saying, this is the scripture. It was the client saying, this is one that I lean on that helps me. Is that right? That's true. And I think this is really important for therapists who, especially who um, are not familiar with doing this kind of work. There can be some apprehension. That I don't know how to work with religious clients. I'm not religious myself, or I'm, I'm a different religion. Um, I don't know the scriptures, and that is perfectly okay. What qualifies someone to do religious CBT is not that they have their own religious beliefs, is that they're open and willing to work with the beliefs of the client, mm. and that will change based on the client. Um, now, there are some circumstances where, so for myself, a Christian woman, a Christian therapist, if I'm working with a Christian patient, I do have more familiarity with those religious scriptures. So I may at times ask them if they know of such and such a verse and if that would be applicable. Uh, but more often it is the client that generates that. Hmm. Mm. So this is interesting because you know, we've, we've talked about on this show before kind of this process of deconstruction and reconstruction and kind of this process of evaluating beliefs that maybe you, you grew up with, but then later in life, you're kind of changing your outlook or changing what you believe to be true about God or about faith. So when you're using those as evidence, has, have you ever had someone who said, you know, I want to use this that I believe about faith as evidence. And then later they said, well, I don't really believe that anymore because my faith is changing. So then you kind of have to rework it. Yes. I think it's careful. We need to be careful as therapists that we're not invested in a sort of spiritual outcome with our clients. Um, Meaning that they do not need to end up, how do I put this, like more religious or more spiritual or, or match the therapist's spiritual beliefs. So, Yes, I've had some who have started out more religious and then maybe their beliefs get more liberal. And so we are following the the client's lead in that. Um, I ran into one situation. It was a great learning situation early on in my career when I was still at Duke. And I was working with a, a young man and I knew he was a Christian and he was struggling. And I remember, I think it came through my email, some sort of, a, I think it was like devotional material. And I remember thinking, oh, this really applies to what we've been talking about in therapy. I bet this would be really encouraging to him. And I printed it up and gave it to him in our next session. Well, that was a big mistake um, because I didn't hear from him for a few weeks. And then he did come back in, thankfully. And he was able to tell me, it took a lot of courage on his part, that he didn't appreciate that, that actually he found that offensive. He didn't believe those things. Mm. And it really caused a rift. And he wasn't sure he was going to come back. But... He felt he owed it to our relationship to at least tell me what was going on. 
and I was so grateful for that. I mean, it was a mistake on my part, and I learned so much from that. I was able to apologize. We repaired the rupture, and we kept on going. We made a lot of progress together. Um, but it was a good lesson for me that just because myself or another client, you know, might have this, uh, might have found it that encouraging, it doesn't mean all clients would. So I learned from that point on to really follow my clients to ask a lot more questions and let them lead. I think that's such mm. a good point, especially for folks listening who are not a mental health professional, but who maybe are seeing a therapist or things like that. I always try to encourage people when they ask, I say, listen, you're there to get what it is that you need and you know kind of that best. And so you should, yeah. you shouldn't feel bad about saying, well, this was helpful. This wasn't or things like that. You know, I think sometimes people are worried about offending the therapist or whatever, but I mean, you're there to kind of advocate for yourself. And so I think that's a really good point, even hearing from you that you were thankful that he did that. Oh, yeah, really thankful. And the opposite is also true that um, I've asked clients to, because this is my area, I will ask them if they're religious or spiritual, if that's important to them, let them know that they can talk about that here. And, you know, I'll have them lean over and kind of whisper, like, can I really talk about religion here? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, like it's like it's yeah. a secret, but it's a taboo topic in society still. You go to yep. parties and you're not supposed to bring up religion. And so they feel that that's the same in therapy. So I think as therapists, we have to do the same thing is to almost, I put it in quotation marks, like give them permission that they can talk about those issues with us. Hmm. If only there was somebody that was doing research on, you know, using faith in a, like with mental health care providers or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? I know. <laughs> oh, I, but I, I think that what y'all are both highlighting is so important. And, you know, Michelle, what you're mentioning about um, how mental health care providers, you know, clients so often are like, is that okay to talk about in here? Mm -hmm. And we talk about so many other areas of the client's yes. lives that is that are really sensitive oh. and intimate and, you know, but but you're absolutely right that this is often an area that individuals are like, oh, I don't know if I can talk about this. Yeah. Um, let me tell you an interesting story yeah. about that. So a few years ago, I had this client, and it was our intake, and so usual questions. I you know, do the psychosocial interview, and I get to the questions at religion, and she's adamant. No, religion is not part of her life. It never has been. Um, not spiritual. You know, no, no, no. And so um, I left it alone. You know, if the person says no to that, then we don't pursue that anymore. Well, it was probably two, three, even four sessions later she came in that week and she said, um, do you remember in our first session when you asked me about religion? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I didn't tell you the truth. Religion is actually the most important thing in my life, or at least mm -hmm. it used to be. Mm -hmm. But I've been in so much chronic pain um, for the last two years, which is why she come to see me and so depressed because I believe that God is punishing me. And that's why I'm in chronic pain. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm working. I'm out of a job, and that's why I'm depressed. And although he used to, God used to be the most important being in my life, I have completely rejected him. And I was so ashamed that I couldn't tell you that. And the only reason I'm telling you that is because you asked me those questions about religion and the intake, and I felt that maybe I could bring it up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was oh my astounded. And then the rest of our therapy for the next year really all centered around spiritual issues and... Um, so that was that was another good lesson for me to remember that just because someone says no right away, 
it doesn't mean it's never going to come up again. But that was that opening that I let her know that I'm comfortable talking about this if you are. Yeah. And that's, and it's so important because think about if you hadn't had that opening, if so much of her struggling was interwoven into her faith and relationship with her higher power with God is, is how, you know, her term, um, that, that, you know, had you not opened that door, I can imagine that much of the work that y'all had done or were about to do would not be as effective without including that part of, of who she is and her relationship with, uh, with her higher power. That's right. Yep. So that's, and that's even really interesting because, and that's partially, it's a better example of what I was trying to get at before is, you know, if someone says, uh, whatever it is, and you say, can you give me evidence for that? And you say, and they say, yes, here's a scripture that says God hates me and is angry, uh, Mm. or one that can be read that way. Then, I mean, what do you do with that? Because we would, assumedly say like maybe that's not the case but that's not really your place to say hey you're reading that wrong or um you know things like that so do you ever find evidence based in things that then lead to kind of negative emotions right shame Mm -hmm. or guilt or Mm -hmm. fear or you know Mm -hmm. yeah that can be tricky because as you, you point out rightly robert that we're not as mental health professionals um theological experts or spiritual directors that's what clergy is for and so we're we're always trying to avoid you know theological debates or discussions of that nature. So at that point, it might be a nice time to bring in a clergy member. Um, now, sometimes when people are having spiritual struggles, they have left their religious institution, and so there isn't a clergy member that they are associated with, and they may not even want to speak with someone like that. Um, that doesn't mean the therapist can't consult with someone of that faith, a clergy member, and get some consultation help about how to interpret some of the scriptures. Um, The other thing that a therapist might do besides consultation in that situation is ask for more evidence. So it's kind of like research. You could take data and make it say anything you want. But if you have more data points, the more the better. Let's say you had 20 data points. Now you're starting to form a more consistent story and it's harder to interpret it any way you want. So sometimes what you might do in that situation is ask them to find some more evidence than just this one verse that they think is supporting that negative um, belief. Hmm. Mm, that's really good. Well, I, I think a little bit about the this integration of religion or uh, into CBT. Um, and one of the things that I know, and you and I have had many discussions on this and, mm-hmm. and the lack of training or the mm-hmm. lack of... <laughs> um, <laughs> The, just the lack of discussion in the mental health fields in a lot of ways on the role of religion and spirituality and the complex role of religion and mm. spirituality in a mental health treatment. So since you've you know published this book and, and done some of this research, um, actually, no, let me back up. I want to hear mm. a little bit more about the project that oh, you right. did with Duke um, and what your team had found. Sure. So, yeah, let's go back there. Okay, sure. So Harold Koenig at Duke and Michael King, who's over in the UK, they were the um, lead investigators of this multi-trial, randomized control trial for what we were looking at was the effectiveness of religiously integrated CBT versus conventional CBT, what, what therapists are out there doing right now. And we wanted to know if this would be a more effective or at least effective treatment for individuals who were religious and in this case also had a medical illness and depression. So 
I developed the Christian manual, which is our prototype for the religious CBT and also a patient workbook. And then we hired four other consultants who were experts in four other major religions and also in CBT. And so we had Muslim, Judaism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. So those five religions. And we offered this treatment to, I think we had almost 200 participants or clients. Some were based Mm -hmm. in Um, California and some were based in North Carolina and it was all done uh, remotely so most of it by phone a little bit by Skype um, a little bit by instant messaging but majority was done by phone and so as it turns out which is similar to the US population most of our sample was Christian so it was almost a test of Christian CBT uh, but not quite because we did have a few in the other categories and what we found was so that the treatment was 10 sessions over the course of 12 weeks, we did a pre-post assessment, and both types of therapy, both the religious CBT and the conventional CBT, were effective in reducing symptoms of depression, both immediately after treatment, so at 12 weeks, and also at follow-up, which for us was at three months. So we were, and the other interesting part of that, so not only were they equally effective, which by the way is typically what we find in psychotherapy, head-to-head trials, um, most, therapies are effective and they seem to be equally effective. It's hard to uh, make one a little more effective than the other. Uh, But the interesting thing was that for the the most highly religious clients, religious CBT was more effective. Mm. Yeah. So there's something about delivering a therapy that is congruent with someone's faith that makes it even better for them. And in this case, reducing depression. The other neat thing that we found was it didn't just reduce depression. We had a little, we were a little more ambitious than that. We wanted to see if it would improve uh, positive outcomes, and it did. And actually, so did CBT. Increased gratitude, increased altruism, increased, um, I think it was optimism and life, I think it was life satisfaction. It also increased over time. Hmm. Oh, that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So, so, the, so both conventional CBT um, and religious CBT improved outcomes. But it sounds like you're saying that those with who had higher levels of religiosity, the religious CBT, it 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 had a bigger impact, basically. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is so important for those of us in the mental health fields, just making sure that we are really meeting our clients where they are and um, to, and being aware of all of the um, different layers of intersectionality of who they are and their belief systems and, and really being sure to integrate that appropriately um, while also looking at what the evidence says. So that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And offering the best treatment for that client. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So now I'm going to go back to the other mm-hmm. question <laughs> that I had started before. Um, just recognizing again, that mental health care providers aren't really, there's not much training on how to integrate clients' faith. And there's certainly not very much discussion in uh, graduate programs that explicitly unpack this area of clients' lives. So um, what has the response been among mental health care providers to your research? Or or what have you been hearing from mental health care providers about your work? I mean, it seems to be positive. I haven't haven't received any hate mail. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's always a good thing. (laughs) Um, No, but I actually have had a lot of therapists reach out. So um, as you know, I wrote and, and published a book in 2016 about how to 
integrate specifically in this case Christianity into CBT to treat depression. And I've had a lot of people reach out uh, to ask about the book or how to purchase that. And that was um, a result of the, the trial that I just told you about and the results. What I did was compile basically down to seven main tools that were used in that treatment manual um, and then made it a really practical uh, primer for people so that someone who has absolutely no experience doing this but now has a religious client in their office and they think that you know CBT would be a good option for them. This um, book was written so that someone could pick that up and read that and, and be able to administer that kind of treatment as long as they have some training in CBT. Yeah. So it sounds like the book is focused more towards mental health professionals and incorporating faith into their, their use of CBT. Right. Yeah, that was my primary audience. The secondary one was for clergy. And interestingly, I've had a lot of clergy reach out about it too, um, mainly because I wanted them to know that such a resource could exist for the members of, um, in this case, of their church, um, because there is some hesitancy on the part of clergy to refer out, right. whether they're afraid that you know their, their parishioner's faith might not be respected or even challenged. Um, I wanted them to know that, hey, there is something out there that's not only empirically supported to help their mental health, but also can support them spiritually. Yeah. And then the, the third audience uh, was for Christians with depression who are potential clients who maybe aren't going to see anyone right now um, to know that there are options out there that will support their worldview that are effective. Yeah. So you've actually just there kind of foreshadowed the next two questions that I had, which was, hmm. you know, we talk about our audience being mental health professionals, but then also ministry professionals, and then also just individuals who are interested in their own mental health or for their friends or, or things like that. So if the book is mostly geared towards, you know, mental health professionals, and then you said that you also heard back from religious leaders, so pastors, ministers, whatever it is, and then individuals. But I'm guessing you wouldn't say, hey, you're a pastor, try to do CBT with this, right? So for those folks, what is kind of the practical use of this other than knowing that this is an option if they go to see a therapist? Because you wouldn't say, yeah, try to do CBT in a pastoral counseling setting, right? Right. And I was trying to be very clear about that in the book. What I did provide for clergy was an appendix to help them recognize depression if they hadn't been trained in that so they could see the symptoms. They couldn't diagnose it, but at least they could say, if I'm working with someone, wow, there, I see a lot of this person in this list, they would know that that would be a good time to make a referral. I also provided some resources for um, start to develop relationships with therapists in their area so they could make those referrals and provided with a couple of resources online. So whether this is a, a clergy member trying to find a therapist or just an individual trying to find it, I gave them two kind of options for doing that. If you want a CBT therapist, there's the Association for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapists, and they have a search for a therapist online option, so you can look by your state for that. Or they could look on something like the Association of Christian Counselors and find a therapist and see if they have been trained in CBT and go at, at, from that route. Right. And a lot of, you know, psychology today or other, you know, we kind of think of the big uh, directories, a lot of times mm -hmm. you can search by like they can check what types of therapies they do and you could, yeah. you could search for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So okay. are any of these principles, obviously not the full thing, but so say it's me. And this is one of the things that I love about CBT is it's kind of a, a tool that you can take with you. Right. So mm -hmm. if I'm listening, I say, man, I really struggle with depression or whatever. Aside from, you know, buying a CBT uh, 
workbook that you can work through, which is a decent option, but what's the practical use of these tools kind of at home for myself without, I mean, maybe after I go see a therapist, but if I'm listening, is there practical uses at home for how I can use kind of the CBT model to kind of work through my moods or things like that? Absolutely. And there are some worksheets, by the way, in the book that you could use um, or worksheets that you could find online. Um, and to be quite honest with you, I filled one out this morning. Um, I still use the tools myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> awesome. I, I, really do, did. I have do you too, too, sister. Oh, it, yes. It yes. is sitting on my dining room table right now. Yep. Awesome. I find it, I just find it really helpful. I decide uh, the kind of day that I want to have. And then I think of what kind of thoughts and feelings and behaviors that would contribute to that kind of a day. Or if I'm sorting through a situation, can work myself through a thought log. So yes, your mental health professionals are doing this behind the scenes too. We're, we are <laughs> practicing what we're preaching. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, some of the other things we can do, so that's sort of on the, again, on the cognitive side, on the behavioral side, what we, some of the tools are things like forgiveness or acceptance or giving back to others in service or gratitude. Uh, and those are behaviors that I think we all can engage in on a daily basis. So whether it's keeping um, a short gratitude journal, there's lots of neat research around that, that writing down like three things you're grateful for each night just over a couple of weeks can help to decrease depression. So these are just some small things, behaviors, and the ways you can change your thoughts that a person could do at home. Yeah. And I feel like some some of even the basic principles could be used in like mentoring situations or, you know, the, the thought that's popping into my mind is a, a kid goes, a high school student goes to his youth pastor and says, nobody likes me whatsoever. Everybody hates me. And he says, okay, mm. what evidence do you have? And they say, well, nobody called me to hang out today. And you could, instead of saying, well, that's not true, obviously, I'm trying to convince them, you could kind mm -hmm. of evaluate, right? Okay, well, did somebody call you yesterday? Do you have friends that you spend time with, right? To kind of get them to a different conclusion. Now, obviously, I'm not like full-fledged endorsing try to do CBT. Sure. As, but I think yeah. oftentimes we think, well, convincing people of something is really hard. And convincing people of something maybe isn't even that effective anyway, because what you want is people to gain the tool of properly evaluating their own thoughts That's, as opposed to being convinced. Exactly. Yep. So we're asking, so what's the evidence you have for that thought? First, I want them to tell me why you believe it. So give me all the evidence, the best evidence you have that supports that thought, like make me a believer. And then I ask them, what's the evidence against that? So like you said, instead of me convincing that that's not a great thought, there's lots of evidence. They have to give me the evidence against that. So they are functioning as the lawyer, not me. And I, yes, I agree. We should all have been taught these skills. In fact, I think we should have been taught them in elementary or middle school, uh, how much better our lives would have been if we learned some of these basic well-being skills. Uh, so I definitely agree that you don't have to be a CBT therapist to help someone start to shift thinking. That's so awesome. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you too is as a fellow researcher, I know we tend to have a deep heartbeat that's behind what we pour into when it comes to, you know, designing the research studies that we design and create and writing the articles and sharing and disseminating our findings and, you know, writing this, this big, great book, mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, continuing you. to share, like there's so much that goes into it. And they're really, I, I mean, I believe that every researcher has this heartbeat behind what they do. So do you mind if I ask, like, what is your heartbeat behind this research? Or what do you, what is your hope um, for this research that that you're engaging in? 
Mm, yeah, that's a really nice question. I really think it is for the individuals, for the clients, and mm-hmm. for them, for the people who have spiritual or religious beliefs to feel so supported in their worldview, and for them to have excellence offered to them. So I guess I could describe myself like I've always wanted to achieve, to strive after excellence in different areas of my life. And I wanted there to be therapies that existed that were effective, that were excellent for people of faith um, so that they weren't getting um, sort of secondary um, treatment. I wanted them to really feel like they were also getting the best for them that was supporting them in their worldviews. And to do that, you kind of have to back up a step and then direct the the research or the training of the people who are delivering that kind of treatment. So then the focus would be on let's develop these types of treatments, let's test them out, and then let's train people how to do them so we can get this out to the clients who need them. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm, thank That's you. That's so awesome. Well, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Michelle Pierce, you can email her at m. Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, at som.umaryland.edu. Um, we'll also have a link to her book in the show notes um, and her email address. And if you're a mental health care provider who's interested in receiving training on spiritual competency and mental health treatment, uh, we're going to include a link to that opportunity in the show notes, too. Um, and I, I would really recommend uh, that y'all take a look at that um, for those of you who are mental health care providers. If you'd like to connect with Robert Bohr, uh, you could find him at robert bohrcom or on social media at Robert Bohr. Or if you uh, would like to connect with me, um, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Um, Dr. Pierce, thank you so much again for joining us today. Um, I'd love to have you come back on to talk about uh, the research project that we're working on. Oh, yeah, a I would enjoy that. Oh, mm-hmm. me too. <laughs> so that's a little teaser for our listeners. But um, is there anything else that you'd like to add or share uh, before we wrap up today? Well, I just want to thank both of you, Holly and Robert, for putting on a podcast like this and getting this information out to the people who need it. I think that's really amazing. And I was so happy to be part of it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us today. And um, I hope you have a great week. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.